This is Leaders Lens, the show that reveals what it really takes to become a great leader. I'm Jacob Espinoza, a Fortune 500 leadership consultant and director of creator success at Workweek. Let's go. What we'll usually do is that comes during the planning phase, right? So back to the strategy planning, we'll say, okay, we want to outsource or not. And then once we've decided to make that change, we'll do something, for example, like a word chart. And in the chart, say, here's the people who we need to get on board. Well, almost like in sales, you create a pipeline of people you need to buy. Here, we create a pipeline of people we need to agree on the deliverable we're doing. And so we'll set up meetings with them. We'll get their reports interested in our project too. And yeah, just basically get a sales roster of who we need to convince to execute our, our idea. We are back here at the Leaders Lens podcast with my good friend, Brian O'Connor. Me and Brian connected on Twitter probably two years ago. And it's been awesome watching your, your content when it comes to strategy advising. You're one of the best content creators out there, in my opinion. So it's been awesome following. I always get a ton from your content. So I definitely appreciate the consistency. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a while. I was thinking about who to have on the show to talk about strategy. I'm like, man, I got to talk to Brian. We hadn't connected in person. We jumped on a call earlier this week, which was a lot of fun. And I'm excited to connect with you virtually. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. I've been doing strategy for a while. And so starting to talk about it on Twitter, people get it, got excited about it because it's something that people, I think, have a lot of misconceptions on. So I'm happy to, excited to talk about it. Beautiful. And I want to dive into that. But first, I want to just better understand your perspective on leadership. So when you think that, about the things that make leaders great and exceptional, like what are some of the qualities you think of and who are the people you think really make great role models? Yeah, I'll actually get very specific. So a bit of background, I spent a few years at Deloitte kind of working on like strategy planning and transformation projects. We would work, we'd be the advisor to these executives and to these leaders. And so I got to see across a bunch of businesses, like which ones were really successful at creating change in the organization in the way that they want to, right? Versus which ones weren't. I like that differentiator because everybody creates change, but sometimes leaders aren't creating the change that they actually want to. That's great, great framing. Right. Because I mean, so as a strategist, right, like every decision that you make takes power from some people and gives powers to others. Right. And so you have to be careful with how you actually execute strategy from that perspective. Because I think that way, a lot of the leaders that I look up to do two things. One is what I'll call second order thinking, right? Every decision that they make, they think about the secondary impacts of those decisions. And they almost make the decisions based on secondary impacts, right? Because a lot of the people who don't get blindsided by things that they didn't expect. And then on the other side of it, it's kind of a leading through people, not kind of like yelling from the mountaintops. And by that, I mean, when like business is a people thing, like it's a clump of a lot of people on one same trajectory. And so the leaders who understand how to guide people in that direction, I think are the ones that are most successful. I love it. I love it. Are there people that come to mind? I'm not sure if you're able to talk about specifics and maybe it's a historical figure. It doesn't have to be somebody you work with personally, but there's something that comes to mind that you feel like this person really amplifies all the qualities that I think great leaders should have. I'm thinking more about like internal clients and people who've led the organizations themselves that I'm working with. Yeah. So outside of that, I mean, I could think of the classics, right? The Steve Jobs, all those kind of things. But to embody kind of second order thinking plus working along with people, like someone like Steve Jobs didn't do that, right? Like he was known to be someone who kind of was abrasive with people and fought against people. He's kind of the exception to a lot of the rules. Like he had some qualities that just allowed him to not be good at some different things. I feel like my personal perspective and just reading it and hearing stories. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think through 
kind of who I've worked with one-on-one in these organizations. And, and I can kind of pinpoint a lot of people because it's the soft skills that I think really got people really excited to work with, right? Like kind of like what Simon Sinek talks about. But yeah, outside of that, someone like a Steve Jobs like would not be the example of someone who worked through people to get to align everyone. Let's get into your expertise, which is creating strategies that help organizations change. So what are the steps? If I'm a business leader or I'm managing a team and I understand like my team needs to change, something needs to be different. Like where do we start and how do we progress to make sure that we can come out with the outcome that we're looking for? So strategy essentially is thinking through, if you have one specific problem, let's say a strategy for a problem, how do you align all your resources, whether that's initiatives you're working on, people, processes, technology, all those kind of things to be able to overcome that obstacle, right? And so typically I think of a project in three phases and a project being a way to overcome that obstacle. One is strategy. What should we do? Two is planning. How do we do it? And then three is execution or transformation. And that's what, like, do it, right? What should we do? How to do it? And do it. So step one being, and this is, it totally depends on the project. Everyone's slightly different, but at at a 30,000 foot level, what's the problem? Then figure out what the right framework is to overcome that problem. And then, yes, once you've decided what you do, create a plan for how to do it and then execute. I love it. So create the strategy, create the plan, then get to work, make it happen. And I think the biggest mistake people do is they think a plan is a strategy and that's totally different, right? People use the words strategy to mean a goal or a plan. And that's not true. The reason I say is because planning is the act of taking your goal and putting and allocating initiatives at it. So I don't want to use big words, but basically it's what's your scope? How much are you paying for each thing? What's the timeline on that? So that's a very tactical, how do you execute the strategy? And so when I talk, when I work with a lot of clients, they'll hand me a list of a bunch of initiatives that they're working on and say, this is our strategy. And it looks like a to-do list. And that's a plan. And the problem with that is that you, with a strategy, you want to create a competitive advantage, right? What's your competitive moat? How do you as a business make customers so excited to work with you that they'll want to pay you for what you do? How do you stop competitors from coming in and stealing your customers? So like those kind of thoughts on how do you align all your resources, get customers excited as possible about your business is the strategy side of it. So what are some signals that we should be looking at to help us understand if we need to change our strategy or is it, or differentiating that from, is it an execution problem? Because I feel like sometimes people don't execute the previous plan and they go back and say, well, we need a new plan or a new strategy. But the reality is like nothing you come up with is going to work because you're not executing anything that's that's being put in front of you or anything that you agreed to as a team. I'm not sure if you see this as well, but curious to hear your perspective. I've been a part of each of the phases, right? And the execution part of the plan, those are kind of more intertwined. And I mean, it's easy to tell, right? Because if you have a scope, meaning a lot of work you want to do, and that scope keeps expanding, you probably didn't do the planning right Mm -hmm. or there's a problem in the execution, right? If you have a budget and the budget's going way over, there's probably something wrong in the execution side or timeline, right? If things keep getting pushed back, it's either one of two things. One is the plan wasn't made that well, or two is the execution side is not working out. And so, yeah, we usually work with clients to make that, make sure that that doesn't happen. So if it is a strategy issue, what are some signals? What can they look at to help them identify? This is probably actually a strategy thing. We need to go back to our strategy and rethink this. That would be something like positioning is a good example. I think of positioning as a strategy. Thing. Okay. And so positioning is who's your customer? Very specifically, who's your customer? What pain do they have? And how can you solve that problem better than anyone? 
And so examples of poor positioning would be, say, your customers leave you faster than you expect, right? They join because they think it's one thing. And then their customer years find out that it's not actually what they signed up for and they leave, okay. right? Or what if customers aren't willing to pay what you're offering, like what your price is? You probably aren't willing to do that because your solution doesn't match, isn't a good solution for the problem, right? Or they don't fully understand what makes your solution so good, right? So I think a good example, if you're familiar with April Dunford, her book, Obviously Awesome, you want to essentially make your solution so obviously awesome that customers want to pay a lot of money for it. And if they don't, it's probably a positioning problem. Okay, I love it. So let's say we've, we're a team, we're an organization, we've identified like we have a problem, we need to revamp our strategy. Where do you get started? What are the steps that you help leaders take to create change in the organization? Yeah, so it depends on, like class consultant, it depends. Yeah. So it depends on what the problem is, right? Because if step one is getting hyper-specific about what the problem. I think a common misconception is to say like, hey, build me a business strategy. Strategy is targeted at a specific problem. And so that's step one. Like, is it a revenue problem? Is it a profit problem? Is it a customer experience problem? Like, what is the problem that we're facing specifically? Because based on which problem we're tackling is the framework. I have a bunch of frameworks that I've used at a bunch of clients. And depending on which problem it is, the framework I pull out, right? So it's step one, get hyper-specific on what the problem is, uncomfortably specific. Okay. Then I have a list of frameworks that I pull out based on which one it is. Can you give us an example of, of one of the frameworks that you'll work with a client on and maybe just help us with like what problem that would solve? My favorite framework, let me think about what, actually an easier framework to explain. We have one called the ambition matrix, which is basically if you want to launch a bunch of new products, right? If you want to launch a new solution, enter a new country, target new customers, that kind of thing. If you have a really big vision, how do you know that your business or your solutions are going to support that big enough of a vision? And so we have a matrix, which is basically plots out essentially how big of a vision each product you have is. And so that's like, are you entering new markets? And like, are you targeting new customers? That kind of thing. So what we'll do is we'll take your current product suite of products, suite of, of services, plot them on this ambition matrix. And so we have a, a data-based view of saying, hey, how big of a vision is, is each of your products? And if we look at it, we tend to see they're all really concentrated in the less ambitious ones. And we push people to think, okay, if you have a vision that's this big, but your product suite is this big, should we kind of fill that gap somehow? Okay. And so that's what we'll do. Something I feel like I personally struggle with when it comes to taking a strategy and creating a plan are the details. Like I'm very much a big picture person. And so when it comes to like breaking things down to a step-by-step plan, that's easy to communicate to a team. I feel like that's a gap that I have and I usually will leverage partnerships to help out in that area. Are there tools or resources that you found help that could help me with that? If I'm like personally looking at, I want to get better in this area. And this area specifically is figuring out the details in the plan or? Uh, yeah, just I think in general in life, I'm a big picture person. So when it comes down to details, that's usually where I'll like leverage partnerships or I have friends that I'll talk through things with. Chat GPT honestly helps a ton with it right now for me, which has been an awesome tool to have. I'm very grateful for that resource, but curious if there's other things that you've used when you've worked with clients to have a similar personality. Yeah, I'm that way, right? Strategists tend to be that way. Okay. And so when it comes to taking the strategy and moving into a plan, you need to come with the details, right? So here's an example. I worked with a client one time who decided to outsource their customer data, right? Basically outsource how they manage their customer data. And so the strategic choice is, should we outsource this or leave it in-house? And the thinking there is, hey, if it's a core competency to your business, 
you should probably use that as your advantage, right? Build on it, make that your strategic advantage and keep it in-house. If it's not a core competency, probably outsource it. They decided, hey, it's not a core competency. It's not how we're going to win in the market. And so it's an outsourcing process, right? So that's the strategic part where you're thinking through, okay, like, does it make sense to do this or not? Because it gives you a competitive advantage. Then you say, okay, we decided we're going to outsource this. Now we switch to planning phase. Plan is, okay, given that we're outsourcing this, what steps do we need to do to make this a reality? And this was a huge bank. So the process, it was a two-year program, right? And so we had to essentially create a two-year plan to get the data outsourced to a third party. And so that's where it's so detailed that no one person can know it. And so what we did was we created work streams for like each part of the bank to say, okay, for this work stream, say legal, for example, these are all the legal things we need to think about, right? And we're not going to think of everything. So the way you do it is you come up with the first pass, like legal, tech, admin, communications. Those are all different work streams. Come up with everything you can. And the way we come up with it is looking at use cases of other ones, right? So I'll go back. We've done, and I know this isn't as applicable because we have a ton of internal things, but I'll look at every similar project we've done, which is where consultants have an advantage because we've done this a ton of different clients. Yeah, say, okay, what do we need there? What do we miss there? What was the problems there? And take all the learnings into this one doc. So I think the answer is ask friends, look at experts, look at other people who've done this before and ChatGPT. ChatGPT is great for a first pass, absolutely. The art is in picking which initiatives you keep and which you, you throw out. Yeah, I think that's one of the understated values of experience. I think so many people want to just like plug something into AI. This is kind of taking away from the question, but just building on that last point of like plugging something into AI and then copying and pasting, like I'm going to do this. And when you have experience, you can like take the good things, you understand the value of what's there, but then kind of like transform some of the things that you know are not going to be effective in regardless of what it is you're trying to do with it. From a consulting perspective, like I like to think of us as professional problem solvers, right? So take this one outsourcing problem, for example. We've seen this outsourcing problem at hundreds of clients across a bunch of industries. And so we know like last time we did this messed up, we forgot to include this time, let's include it in here, right? And so all these mistakes, you're essentially taking advantage of a network of other companies who've done this. And so you don't have to make those same mistakes. And so where are the professional problem solvers who come in versus the client who's really good at, in this case, banking, right? They nail you know, retail banking and they're really good at that. And so we come together to say, okay, I know how to set up the strategy planning transformation. I've seen all these mistakes. Here's the outline. And they say, okay, this is how you make it specific to my business. And so that partnership is what makes it much more likely to succeed. I feel like, yeah, the partnership between the consultant and the business owner, I feel like I don't know if you struggle with this at all, but I feel like I've kind of gone back and forth where sometimes I lean on the client too much for their expertise. And I kind of take that coach role where I'm trying to talk through them. But then there's other times where I feel like I've been the other side of it where I'm just like, this is what you need to do. Just listen to me. And I feel like the sweet spot is right in the middle somewhere, just kind of depending on the client's needs. And I think with the experience, you understand what this person needs to really be at their best you know, from you as a consultant. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it's their choice. We're advisors, we recommend things based on what we've seen in the past and data and research. I guess it depends on the client because a lot of times we'll advise the executives and they'll kind of beat down and say, okay, everyone down below, which I don't think is the right way to do it, but it's just the way it happens, has to listen to us. I, that doesn't always work out because then we don't have a strong relationship with everyone and all that kind of thing. So on a long-term project, not a good play. On a shorter project where like a lot of strategy products would be four to six weeks, we don't have the time to 
build up those relationships and we just have to kind of power through. That's a good point too, just on like the urgency of the request. Sometimes it's tough to build that rapport if you have the four to six week timeline. Yeah. On like the two-year transformation projects. Yeah, absolutely. That's one where we want to build relationships at all levels and it makes sense. For the say four to six week strategy projects, it's just in and out real quick. And speaking of relationships, like change is all about relationships. Leadership is all about relationships. What are you doing to set leaders up for success? And what can leaders be doing to set themselves up for success when it is time to create change in an organization? What kind of guidance are you generally giving? What we usually do is that comes during the planning phase, right? So back to the strategy planning, we'll say, okay, we want to outsource or not. And then once we've decided to make that change, we'll do something, for example, like an org chart. And in the chart, say, here's the people who we need to get on board. Well, almost like in sales, you create a pipeline of the people we need to buy. Here, we create a pipeline of people we need to agree on the deliverable we're doing. And so we'll set up meetings with them. We'll get their reports interested in our project too. And yeah, just basically get a sales roster of who we need to convince to execute our, our idea. And he talked earlier about the power dynamic where every decision like gives power to one person, but takes power away from somebody else. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Take the outsourcing one, for example. The decision to outsource, well, before it was in-house, right? And so when it was in-house, someone had that group report to them and that group is about to be exited. But we need the support from that person who's about to lose all their, quote, power, right? For lack of better terms. Yeah. And so how do you work with that person? Right? Because if you approach it in a way and say, hey, we're going to outsource and like your job's gone, they're going to fight you back, right? They're going to, there's a high risk that they actually sabotage the project. On the other hand, if you work with them and get them really excited about what you're doing, which is hard to do because you're essentially removing their job, then yeah, it's a much smoother process because they give you the information you need, give you support from their team and all those kind of things. Yeah, that's an extreme example, but I love that you use that one specifically because I think a lot of change initiatives fail because we don't think through the impacts at the different level of an organization. Like where sometimes people are in a bubble, they ask a few people that they always ask questions of their perspective, but they kind of stop there and you're missing on so many different perspectives and potential roadblocks, especially if you're missing your frontline staff, because they're the ones that really have all the information. They're the ones that are going to feel the impacts the hardest of the change. But the layoff one is an extremely challenging one that's super relevant right now as well. A lot of organizations are going through it. So I was on a project where we helped two fintechs merge. And in the merger, here's one example, like you don't need two CFOs, right? And so what happens to the finance function of the two? Like, how do they both come together? Part of the art was figuring out how do you get the finance function, just to pick one, of the acquired company to not want to leave, to be just as motivated in this new version 2.0 of the company. And when their leaders disappear, because once again, you don't need two CFOs, how do you get them just as excited about their new leadership? And so that's an art. How do you? I have, I have thoughts. I'm curious to hear your perspective on it. That's one where I was more involved in the actual like merger themselves and like the strategy, like choosing the company to buy, how the two companies come together, all those kind of things. So I worked alongside the change team on it. Okay. So I'm not as in the weeds there, but for what we did was a set, like a communication strategy, like a communication plan. And so I remember there was one, well, actually one example that I was closer on was, sounds boring, but helping a new system get integrated into a company. And so this was one where we were nervous that we would spend all this money on this system 
that made everyone's lives much easier. But if they rejected it, no one used it and they weren't motivated to use it because they were just used to the old system. It's a waste of money, waste of energy and time. And so what I did was create a communication plan and like a training plan, but I had it so that it felt like it came from them. So I created, just like I mentioned before, I created an org chart of everyone who I needed on my side to get motivated by this change. And then kind of like started with informal meetings, actually, because this is back when we were in the office. So I'd walk around and bump into someone that I needed on my side and just kind of casually started talking about it, get them really excited about it. So there was a group of people kind of from the grassroots, right? Group of people on the bottom of the pyramid who were excited about uh, working with us. So I did that with enough people that had structured conversations with leadership so that both leadership down was excited about it and bottoms up was excited about it. The importance of listening first before implementing change, it cannot be overstated. Yeah. The, because even it gives you the opportunity to tell the team, like based on your feedback, we're making these changes. And if you don't take the time to listen first, you can't say that or people will see that will see it straight through it and realize like, he didn't talk to any of us. What is he talking about or he or her talking about based on the feedback? And I think the important takeaway from that is make it feel like it came from them, right? When I had my big presentation where I was kind of pitching this was a change, people looked on the screen and saw the feedback that they talked about, right? And I would kind of point around the room and be like, oh, just like so-and-so said, like this is how it's updated. And so everyone feels like it's their work together. They made this decision. So they're much more excited about the change than if I just kind of said, this is what we're doing and go. We talked earlier about ChatGPT and like technology is just changing everything for everybody. How are you seeing technology changing? How strategy, planning, executing is happening at organizations? I think it's a back to whole unique experience thing, right? Because what ChatGPT is great at is brainstorming lists of a bunch of things. And so on planning, if you say, how do I outsource a company? And obviously be way more specific than that in your prompt, but it'll give you a bunch of bullets that you can use for your plan. And so the art is going through those bullets and saying, oh, I need this. Oh, this reminds me of two other things I need. And then looking at bullet three and being like, ah, I don't need that one. So it's kind of like using it as a first pass to come up with what you need to do and then using your experience or the experiences of others to decide what's in, what's out. Use your experience. What other tools are you using currently outside of ChatGPT? I'm curious. For ideation, for planning? Well, just, just for any step of the process, I guess, really. Just kind of curious what your tech stack is. It's more from my experience. Okay. So I have playbooks, which basically have process maps, frameworks, and then the ChatGPT stuff is to fill in the blanks. Okay. So an example would be every time we decide to go into a new country, let's say, if you say, hey, I want to expand into Canada, right? You look at the factors that go into the expansion. So that's like political factors, economic factors, all these kind of things. And coming up with those factors is just a research headache, right? Because you have to take a first pass at finding them. But now with ChatGPT, we have the framework, then you hit go and it gives you a bunch of factors, right? And But it's up to you to use your experience, your knowledge to like weed through all the factors and say, this isn't important, this is. But it gives you a first pass, which before that first pass for me was just took forever, a lot of research. Now it's first pass ChatGPT, then you go in and confirm using research. I love that you brought up the frameworks as well, because that's what ChatGPT is great at. Like use this framework, fill in data for this specific situation. And it just like no time at all knocks it out for you. But if you don't have the framework to understand what framework's relevant for the situation, you're still not going to get the outcome that you want. Yeah, exactly. There's two main issues with it. You need to put it in a framework. So you have to know what's the right framework for the problem you're trying to solve. 
And then the other one is great at brainstorming. It's not great at, it'll tell, it, it won't tell you when it's wrong, right? So let's say four to five bullets are correct. That fifth one you want to make sure is actually right. 100%. You still have to, the data to fact check it. You're going to kill your credibility. People are going to see you behind the curtains. Yes, for sure. For sure. I love it. So once change has been made, the plan's out there. Now it's time for this to be sustainable and live in an organization. What can organizations do? I think you touched on some of it as far as like listening to feedback, but curious if there's like a bullet point list of things that we can think through as we're leading teams to make sure that we are actually executing the plans or getting the outcomes that we need. So the framework that I typically use the most, I call the strategic choice cascade. It helps you figure out what's the competitive advantage for the business, but then also how do you make it sustainable? Go, sorry, three parts. Competitive advantage, how do you execute? How do you make it sustainable? So in that last bullet, how do you make it sustainable? We'll typically do things like create metrics that inform the strategy itself. Right. So here's an example. Zappos, right? Zappos said, hey, our strategies, we're going to be 10x better customer service. We're going to dominate customer service. So much so that we're moving our headquarters to where the customer service reps are. When it comes to sustainability, they completely change the metrics that they track. Right. So most call centers have a metric where they say, okay, well, how quick were we able to take care of someone's problem? They threw that metric out the window and said, hey, that metric does not keep our, is not helping our strategy out. And so I forget what the other metrics they use, but they essentially create their own metrics to inform the strategy to keep it sustainable. So you make, essentially make metrics, have kind of management rewards and, and systems that inform the strategy and kind of keep the strategy sustainable. Measure what matters. And I, I spent a lot of time in call centers. Like a lot of my professional career was working in call centers. So I'm very aware of their metrics and a lot of the stress that comes in managing call time. So I love hearing that, you know, there's an organization thinking outside the box a little bit on, on how to mitigate that one. It's so different. Yeah, it's really impressive what they pulled together. What's next? If you think of the future trends of creating change, planning, like where do you see it headed as the world just continues to get closer and closer together? By that, do you mean AI? I mean, like an AI perspective? like Potentially, yeah, AI. I mean, you can kind of work from anywhere in the world now, which is a, a new element. You can hire from anywhere in the world. Just kind of curious to hear like maybe some of the problems that you're helping clients solve right now. The biggest change is AI. And by that, I mean like the implementation of it. So a lot of people are asking, are getting overwhelmed with AI tools, but seeing how incredibly valuable they are. And so a lot of questions are, hey, like, how can I actually use this? And so that's going to create a ton of change, right? And it's kind of been that wave of transformation in the past, right? So before it was, how do I migrate to the cloud? That was huge. And that was like 10, 15 years of just a ton of companies trying to figure out how they can change to migrate to cloud. Now that transformation is probably going to go the AI route, right? Which is, is how do I change my entire business around AI? And so that means they're going to have to need more data. They're going to need to store the data, have more data security. And so it's a lot of upgrades, and a lot of change, a lot of new hires and talent and that kind of things that, yeah, that organizations are going to think, have to think through for, for a while. And I think a lot of people are concerned about how it's going to eliminate jobs, so talking about AI, but it's going to create a ton of jobs as well. Like there's already people getting hired as prompt engineers. I think you talked about AI implementation. I mean, if you can become great at helping companies implement AI into the organization, I mean, you're going to do pretty well for yourself, especially right now that's so new and there's new tech coming out all the time. So it's going to be interesting to see like the types of opportunities that are out there for people that are willing to put in the work and become early adopters. I agree. I think, I mean, just like any technology, it's going to remove some, it's going to add some. So yeah, it's a shifting landscape. 
but I don't think, I think people should get excited about it. Yeah. I think for writers like myself, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I do wonder if there's going to be a time where we look at actually writing a book will be looked at as the same as actually like handwriting it out now that we have the printing press, where it's hard to imagine somebody actually like hand wrote every single book that was out there because there was no printing press. And it's going to get to the next point of like people actually wrote all those words. They weren't just like typing in prompts to AI to do the work for them. It'll be interesting to see if it gets that mainstream at some point, but we'll see. I think the state of content has fundamentally changed in the past two or three months. Yeah. Because you have a sea of people who didn't have the skill to write online and now are using AI to do that. And so you get all this content coming in. And then you have people who are good at writing online and they just use AI to pump up the volume. So on both sides of the equation, you have a ton more content entering the marketplace or not marketplace, but the platforms. Yeah. And so I think it's fundamentally changed everything because it's almost commoditized content. But at the same time, put the value, move the value from the content itself to the writer of the content. And so it's almost more about who you are and what community you can build rather than the content you create. Like, I think the content should come from your experiences and rallying together a community of people passionate about you, your ideas and the problems you're solving, where before it was based on who you were didn't matter as much and the content was focused. 100%. Like, I grew my Twitter following almost as up book threads, like almost entirely. Like of my 40,000 followers, like 15,000 were from this one thread that I posted like five times with like a super clickbait headline. And then it was just a list of 21 leadership books and like bullet points on what you could learn from them. But now anybody can just create that thread pretty simply with AI. And so they don't do as well because you just see them so much now. Like the personality, the credibility, the ability to connect are all the things that right now, I think in leadership also, but also people that are writing online is what's helping people stand out. I'm definitely seeing that. People who have focused on community over growing on threads haven't been as affected by, I've seen a lot of people who their growth has been like this and then the last two, three months just flatlined, completely flatlined. And a lot of people. Yeah, happening. I'm in that camp 100%. So I'm trying to like the personality, let that show maybe you'll see what it takes. Yeah, I think it's personality, it's community, but also experiences. Like I think what you've done, which is a good thing, right? Like we're talking, all we're saying is is actually fundamentally good for the community and the people. We're talking about, we should bring people closer together that you should have real experiences, not just like Google stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it's harder and it takes longer, but I think as a whole, it's better. Completely agree. Brian, it's been an awesome conversation, man. Where can people love you going to stay in touch with you? So I have a newsletter where every Thursday I talk about how do you make better decisions and like, how do you craft strategy? And so that newsletter is called Outlier Growth and it, the website's outliergrowth.com. I love it. Incredible resource. I read it every Thursday. Brian, we appreciate you so much for being here on the Leader's Lens podcast. Enjoy your day. You too. I see you, Jacob. Thank you for listening to the show. Don't miss another episode of Leader's Lens and the inside scoop on becoming a great leader. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Leader's Lens, please tell a friend.